0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts Marcy and Jenny are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy, and I'm Jenny, and we are here today with 2017 Newberry Honoree Adam Gidwitz. Hi, Adam. Hello there. You you're a great writer, of course, and you're very imaginative and dark
1: in this amazing way that I think carries on um, the tradition of Raul Dahl and. Um, Ava Ibbotson and, um, a little bit of like Struel Peter, but that's just, that's mm-hmm. just my, you know, um, <clears throat> so I, I gladly wanna, accept that. Yes. So <laughs> I want to know about, uh, a tale dark and grim and that series. I want to know what, what was the inspiration for that?
2: Um, yeah, I'd love to tell you that before I tell you that story though, because you said something that, um, referred to a conversation or brought up for me, a conversation I was having just last night, um so I'm gonna name drop briefly and say I was on the phone with uh, Jeannie Birdsall, author of The Penderwicks. She's so who, wonderful. Which is she's amazing. That those books are incredible. And a <laughs> lot of people just read the first one, but you gotta keep reading. I maybe the fourth one is my favorite. The fourth one I like laughed and cried the whole way. Anyway, she's brilliant. And she we were saying, um, and she said she was like, you know, you're not really a writer, and then and like just kept talking. And and I would have been. <laughs> oh. and, um, except that it's, she was just kind of repeating something that I had said to her, though I would you know, kind of said it in a moment of weakness and she was repeating it as if it were a fact cause she's nice like that. <laughs> but I think that, um, there's some truth to it. Um, and that's, um, and, and so I'll just go into that because you know, no secrets. Um, uh, I, a number of my books, including the inquisitor's tale, I have had to rewrite from scratch after giving to my editor. And that tends to happen when I write a book in um, with a floating third-person narrator. When I write it, you know, like a novel. Um, and the Penderwicks use a floating third-person narrator. Though so- Sometimes it comes in pretty close to the girl, uh, the girls, but it floats around. Um, and and in fact, um, for the Inquisitor's Tale, I'm gonna get back to Tale Dragon and I My Promise. But for The Inquisitor's Tale, um, uh, my editor told me when she read the first draft that she read, you know, you had you told me all these cool stories from uh, medieval Europe that you'd been learning about. And when you, you know, I lived over there for a year, you came back with these amazing stories. But this book is boring. Um, And and it was because I was I think I was trying to prove that I could write like a writer. And what I came to realize through the process of that book and then I just had it with an, the new book I'm working on where I'm having to rewrite it from scratch for a very similar reason, pretty much the same reason. Um, I feel like I'm a storyteller and I'm pretty good at telling stories. Um, but if I don't have in mind my, the specific people that I'm telling the story to, they could be characters within the book, um, like Inquisitor's Tale or in my new book, or back to A Tale Dark and Grim, they can be um, children that I know that I'm writing a book for but unless I'm actively telling a story to a young person, um, the book just falls apart. It becomes just a mess. I think about um, maybe my readers sometimes, I think about the critics, I think about librarians or even podcasters, I think about what my wife is gonna say or my mom, and every sentence has like a different audience almost. It just falls apart. So I appreciate you saying that I'm a good writer. I, th- I think you said that, I'm gonna just pretend you said that. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, what I really think it is, is that I'm a storyteller who writes my stories down because when I try to do anything else, it just fails. What was the question again?
1: (laughs) Well, I I wanted to find out about the inspiration for Tale Dark and Grim, but now I have another question for you, um, because of what you just said. So in your books, if you're, if you're storytelling them and you're just writing them down, do you feel like that storytelling voice, that narrator is always you or a version of you, or do you actually go into a different persona telling the stories
2: so it was at the outset so the the tale dark and grim series the grim series um is is me speaking to the kids um and even um the star wars book i wrote is me speaking to the kids um but for inquisitor's tale um it's it's set in a tavern where um different characters are telling the stories of these kids to each other um and and, in so, in that, in fact, every chapter, as I rewrote it, you know, like I had what I wanted to happen in the chapter from the earlier draft um that my editor said was boring. And then to rewrite it, um I would often just put on an accent and um sort of embody a um a, a character. i'm a I'm a you know, I was like a failed actor at a, in college. in high school, I acted a lot in college. Um, I acted a little bit, and it was only so so. But um, like a lot of writers I know, we have um, drama and acting experience, and so I would just embody a character and say what I wanted – they would tell the story and I would write down what they were saying with like insane accents, which if you um, (laughs) – yeah, Um, so – Um, so yeah, so not always. Um, and then in this, um, the current book I'm working on, there's sort of an epistolary novel. So, um, a, the main character is writing letters to, um, another character. And so again, I'm trying to embody her, um, voice. Um, but where a tail dark and grim came from is related to this actually. And so, um, I can transition back into that question. Um, uh, and I'm monologuing because the secret <laughs> about many writers is that, um, we write down our, our, our words because no one really wants to listen to them live. So <laughs> yeah. now you have to, um, so, uh, I was a teacher, um, and I was teaching second grade and I was writing about, um, ancient Egypt. I was teaching about ancient Egypt, sorry, mummies and pyramids. Um, and I had never uh, written a book. I'd never written anything. I never considered myself a writer. Um, uh, but I did have, um, Uh, I did have a tradition of storytelling. I was telling a lot of stories. I was telling stories to kids and I decided I wanted to read them a book about ancient Egypt, but I couldn't find a good um, story for second graders that took place in ancient Egypt and um, wasn't time travel, wasn't silly, really took the world and their gods seriously, um, uh, but was also fun to read aloud to second graders. So I decided to try to write a story for these kids, and I wrote a chapter of a book, um, chapter of the story, and I brought it in and read it to the kids. And they said, oh, that's pretty good. What happens next? And I said, I don't know. So I went home and wrote the next chapter of the story, read it to them the next day. And they said, what happens next? And I said, I don't know. So I went home and wrote the, another chapter that very night, read it to them the very next day. Um, and they said, what happens next? And I said, I don't know, because um, I'm exhausted after teaching a full day of school. Um, but if you've ever read a story to second graders, you know that if you start it and you don't finish it, they will kill you because they're terrifying little creatures. <laughs> so I finished the book, and I brought in the story, um, a new chapter, every pretty much every single day. Um, and by the end of the school year, um, the book was 100 pages long, and I had finished it. Um, they had really enjoyed it. And I decided uh, sort of in the late spring, as I was finishing up the book, that I would quit my job as a teacher and see if I could get the book published. And now my my wife was not happy about this because that was half our income was gone. Um, but I decided to do it anyway. I quit my job, and I revised the book. And when I revised the book, I thought to myself, you know, I had written this book to tell to these students, um, and I spoke to them as I told them the story, and I would refer to things that we had learned and. So I couldn't do that in a a book that was gonna be published. If it was gonna be published, it needed to sound a lot more like Johnny Tremaine. That was what I decided. And so I rewrote this Ancient Egypt book pretty much so it sounded like Johnny Tremaine. It went from being 100 pages long to 400 pages long. Um, And all of the direct address and all that stuff I had done left. Um, And uh, it took me another year. And um, I was insanely lucky. I've been incredibly lucky in my life. In that classroom, uh, there was a a girl whose mom was an agent of children's literature, Um, and so I sent her that book and asked her the the new version of the Ancient Egypt book, and um, she invited me to come speak to her in her office, um, which is not typical for an agent, but I knew her. I taught her daughter for two straight years, actually. And I sat down in front of her and I said, so what'd you think? And she said, it's not very good. and she said, if you wanted to start on a new project, I would understand, which is agent code for throw the entire thing in the garbage. Um, I was totally devastated. Nobody talked about what had happened and why it was so bad because she remembered her daughter coming home and saying she liked the book. And I think she found that hard to believe having read it. Um, and one of the things I said was, well, yeah, I would sort of told it to kids, but you can't really do that in a published book. So I, I didn't. Do, I, I changed it. And she sent me the galley of, an, of another book that she representi- was representing that hadn't come out yet um, called The Name of This Book is Secret mm. by Pseudonymous Bosch, which the first page is don't read this book. You know, it's going to scare you or, or whatever. I've got it on my shelf, but I can't read it. So that sort of stuck in my mind. Um, and then I was uh, substituting at my school, um, asking, uh, uh, trying to make some extra money, and they asked me if I'd be willing to be a substitute librarian for a day. And I said, yes, because librarian is one of the best jobs I can imagine. You get to hang out with kids and share stories you like with kids. So I was like, great, I'm gonna do that. They said, great, you're gonna be telling stories to second graders. I said, no problem. They said, tell them any story you want. I said, great. So I went home and I was looking on my shelf for a good story to read to second graders. And I came across my big book of the real Grimm's fairy tales. And I had never read those stories. Wow. Um, so uh, I looked at it and I thought, oh, fairy tales. Those are perfect for little kids. <laughs> so I opened it up to a story called uh, Faithfully Johannes," And in the story Faithfully Johannes," two children get decapitated by their parents. They get their heads put back on at the very end, so it's fine. But I read that and I was like, um, can I read this to second graders? Uh, will I get fired? And then I thought, let's find out. So I brought the book in, and I started reading to these kids, and very quickly, they started to get very nervous. So I started to make jokes to calm them down or warn them when something really terrifying was about to happen. Um, And at the end of the story, every kid was completely traumatized, except for one little girl who came up to me and stuck her finger in my face, and she goes, that was good. And I was like, what? And she goes, you should make that into a book. And I thought, huh. So I went home and I was like, well, it's already in a book. What can I do? And then I had the idea, probably inspired in part by pseudonymous Bosch. What if I just told, wrote down the story exactly the way I told it to those kids, with all the jokes, all the warnings right in the book. And so I wrote down the story the way I had told it to them. And I sent that to the agent um, instead of the ancient Egypt book. And she called me up real quick and she said, this, this is pretty good. She became my agent, and that became the first chapter of A Tale, Dark, and Grim. So that is the origin story of that book.
0: That is an amazing origin story. <laughs> is that how the um, the podcast happened, too? I mean, it sounds like basically the same.
2: It's the same idea. Yeah. So, yeah, because my career really started, it, it truly, my career, I owe my career to telling a Grim fairy tale live to a group of children. I have wanted more opportunities to do that. Um, and so for a while, I went back to teaching half time while my I was my career was getting started. And one of the things that I was doing was, and a- at after school at my school, a bunch of first and second and third graders would come to the library with me once a week, and I would just read them fairy tales out of my um, big red book. And I would make jokes and comments, but actually the best part was when they would, they would say the funniest things. They would heckle me constantly, and. <laughs> And, and I wanted, I mean, I was like sitting there and I was like, this is gold. This is unbelievable. If we could just put this on camera or on a, on a microphone, like this is the best entertainment that is out there. I mean, that's how I felt. I was laughing so hard every day. Um, and so um, some years later, um, as podcasting picked up, it occurred to me that that would be a pretty good podcast. And then I was contacted by a podcasting company and they said, do you have any ideas? And I said, I only have one idea and it's essentially how I got started as a writer and I just want to start recording that. And they were willing to take a risk and hear some like kind of bloody, kind of scary, also silly and fun fairy tales and have them told live to kids. And so um, we uh, recorded 20 episodes for the first two seasons We're gonna start recording seasons three and four um, next month, uh, yeah, hopefully next month. Um, And uh, it's been unbelievably fun. So I'm telling real grim fairy tales uh, live to kids. I changed them some, um, not to make them any less bloody, but just to make uh, the characters a little bit more um, emotionally relatable. Some of the fairy tales feel a little bit distant, um, especially when you get to the deeper cuts. Um, And the best part about it is the kids are still heckling me. So like one of my favorite episodes, there's a blue dwarf. And I said to the kids, is a blue dwarf? Um, And this fifth grade girl, because it's slightly ranged from third to fifth grade. This fifth grade girl says, you mean a Smurf? And I'm like, no, no, it's a dwarf. It's a blue dwarf. And she goes, I'm pretty sure that's a Smurf. And I was like, it's not a Smurf. (laughs) Um, And then for the rest of the story, every time the blue dwarf came up, the kids would go, it's a Smurf. And I'm like, it's not a Smurf. So um, it's been pretty amazing.
1: And the name of the podcast is.
2: Oh, yeah, right. If I were any good at self promotion, I would have mentioned <laughs> the podcast. It's called Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest. And it takes its name from the rating system. Before every episode, I tell you if the story is Grim, Grimmer, or Grimmest. And the first season is available for free on Apple Podcasts. Um, just search Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest. Uh, two M's, of course. And um, uh, the second season is on Pinna. Pinna is a. All audio subscription service for kids, um sort of an alternative to giving them YouTube. You can give them pinna and then they'll just listen, and there's no watching any screens of audiobooks and podcasts.
1: The Egyptian book that you wrote, like Johnny Tremaine. How many wounded weird hands did it feature?
2: <laughs> <laughs> there were no wounded weird ha- weird hands. Um, though that man that part of that book devastated me. Um, though there the bully there was a bully in the book who got blinded in the, in a battle near the end. It was pretty brutal. It would have it would have been depressing as Johnny Tremaine, I promise.
1: Yeah, cuz Johnny Tremaine was one of those books that I had to like cram in my head. I love Johnny, Johnny School. And I just always remember him, the black, you know, like silversmithing accident and then the hand. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yes.
0: So, yeah. Thank you. But
2: that was, but Marcy, you said you loved it. Is that right? I did. Or did I- well, as a
0: kid, though, but I think yeah. it's the same thing. When, when you're a kid, you love the stories that have like the weird, crazy things happen. And you're like, the hand, this is awesome. Instead of being horrified as a grown up.
2: Yeah. I remember feeling like, uh, I couldn't tell if I liked or hated the book. I remember reading it and I remember never forgetting those moments. Um, I think the the moments were too powerful for me to make sense of how I – whether I enjoyed it or not. Enjoy wasn't really the word.
0: Mm, Yeah. But being fascinated by a book as a kid is almost as good whether you like it or not.
2: Absolutely. I mean I don't care if kids like my books or not. I just want them to have nightmares so they never forget them.
0: (laughs) Ooh, mine mine, like that was The Watcher in the Woods. I don't know if you read that one, but oh. it, it was like, it, not time, it was time travel, but like also space travel, but also kidnapping and speak like spooky things in the woods. It was amazing. The Witches of Worms scared the shit out of me. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the book that really traumatized me as a young person was uh, for some reason my grandmother gave this to me when I was in fifth grade, I think because she had a bookseller recommend it to her. It was Robert Cormier's Fade. Um, do you guys? Robert Cormier wrote um, The Cheese Stands Alone.
1: And The Chocolate War.
2: Uh, and The Chocolate War, exactly. Um, but his book Fade is the most messed up, ostensibly middle grade book I have ever read. Maybe we would call it YA these days. Um, and I wish they had back when I was growing up. Because it's about a boy who learns how to turn invisible. And he discovers he can turn invisible when he accidentally stumbles on a KKK rally and they chase him through the dark woods with their torches and he falls down and he like turns invisible and they run over him, which would have been disturbing enough. Um, But he uses his invisibility power to go and spy on the girl that he's in love with in her house Ah. and watches her get undressed only to discover – that her twin brother comes in and gets undressed too. And they get in bed together and do things that he can't not watch because oh. his eyelids are invisible.
0: <laughs> oh my! <God. laughs> that took a turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his, that's what I thought. Oh, God.
2: Okay. Yeah. I'll never forget it. I, that was the worst. Could that was he, just uh, a terrible experience.
1: He also wrote a book about uh, a school bus hijacking.
2: Yeah, that guy—he needed to find his audience.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was very YA, but it, yeah, there wasn't that. Yeah,
2: we that didn't really classify like then.
1: That.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. So,
1: well, um, the Witches of Worm was written by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. Ah,
0: yes. Oh. And
1: it scared the crap out of me. <laughs>
0: and then, A Watcher in the Woods was a 1976 book by uh, Florence Engel Randall.
2: Okay. Mm. All right, she June, sounds like a to add to my lady. list And one for you guys not to add to yours.
0: <laughs> fair, fair. Well, you were saying that uh, originally, when you were looking at at books to write, you were looking for one that like took the the world seriously and that took the gods seriously, but also was really fun for your students. And I feel like the Inquisitor's Tale does that. But was it hard to balance that? Because it seems like a a lot of the serious things were made up by you but a lot of the sillier things were actually real or based on real stories. It seems like it might've been hard to sort of balance those things.
2: It's a really astute observation and it actually hadn't occurred to me, but you're totally right. The the I mean, the gonzo weird stuff is not stuff that I made up. And in fact, that's true for Grimm, for the Grimm books too. Um, I think I have a better appreciation for weird stuff than I do uh, imagination for it. Um, and honestly, that, and that gets back to my storytelling that goes for plots in general, I find coming up with plots impossible. I'm terrible at it. Um, what I like to do is hear stories, um, and then see what parts are going to speak to kids and expand those parts and sort of retell them. Um, so yeah, in the inquisitor's tale, um, I had to make up the the more serious stuff, um, because Uh, that those were sort of intimate, the serious parts were intimate stories about children dealing with finding their place in the world, dealing with discrimination. Um, And we do not have records from the middle ages of how kids felt about those things or dealt with those issues. We know kids experienced them because there were all sorts of you know, things that were happening to people, marginalizations and persecutions in the Middle Ages, as opposed to a, a, in addition to all sorts of wonderful things in the Middle Ages. It's not it's not a dark time, just a difficult time, um, kind of like ours right now. Yeah. Um, so kids, kids went through all of this crazy stuff, but we have no records of, of how they felt about it. Um, and so, yeah, I had to make that stuff up. But you're absolutely right. The, you know, um, dragon with deadly farts. uh the guy with wearing nothing but underwear, beating fiends to death in a forest with a donkey's leg. I didn't make up any of that. Um, that's all medieval stories.
0: And a holy dog. I loved it.
2: And the holy dog. How could I not write a book about a holy dog when I found out that it existed, I mean.
0: <laughs> and did I also read Laura Amy Schlitz was your school librarian and looked over the first draft?
2: Oh, yes. She was my school librarian. That's she's amazing. looked over many of my drafts. Yeah. Um, it it was amazing. Um, it was before she was um, uh, writing books for children or publishing books for children anyway. Um, but she um, I don't know if you've ever met her.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> no. So she is an, she's an unforgettable figure. She um, uh, wears, you know, long flowing dresses and she her hair Um, comes down to the middle of her back. And it used to come down much farther, if if I remember correctly, which I may not. I think she became our librarian when I was in fourth grade. Um, And uh, we we once did a, recently we did an event together uh, talking about our books and our shared history. And I said that I remembered so vividly her incredible stories, because what she does in the library is she Um, reads either fairy tales, folk tales, um, other uh, short stories that are appropriate for kids beforehand, memorizes them, practices them, and then performs them for the students, which was unbelievable. And I remember them so vividly. I remember the details. I remember the language. I remember the way she talked. I said that on stage. And she said, That's funny, Adam, because what I remember about you is that you were crawling on all fours all around the library (laughs) while I was telling my stories. And I was like, yeah, but those are not mutually exclusive. I was definitely listening. Um, So uh, it's embarrassing that that's what, you know, Newberry, multiple Newberry winner, Laurie Amishlitz, remembers (laughs) about you. Um, But, you know, whatever.
0: It's, it's not the typical plot or the typical characters that I'm used to. And so I was reading it and sort of halfway expecting that at the end there was going to be some sort of like clever, logical explanation for all of the, the miracles and the kids' powers and things. Mm. And then when I got to the end, like Michelangelo turned out to be an actual angel and the kids were saints. And I just loved that you like really doubled down on that and made it magic and made it uh, – exceptional and not just some sort of clever puzzle that you had to figure out. But I was wondering, I adored that, but I wondered if you got any negative feedback for that.
2: I really, I didn't. Um, And I'm glad you liked it. Um, And that goes back to what one of you had had pointed out before about, you know, when I said taking the beliefs of ancient Egypt seriously, um, I don't know that there were dragons with deadly farts. (laughs) I don't know if Archangel Michael is real or not. But the people at that time were pretty sure that those things did exist. Maybe not the dragon with deadly farts. So they were certain dragons existed. They had found dinosaur bones. What else could they possibly be? Um, and and they were sure of miracles. They were sure of saints. They were sure of God. Um, and so, for me to sort of explain their beliefs away um, would be just as offensive, I think, as you know, calling some culture around the world primitive or something like that. Um, I don't know why I have a better purchase on truth than they did. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can justify that claim at all. Um, and also their belief system is gorgeous, is beautiful. So to under, to undermine it, um, with cleverness, uh, it just would, would just be, feel totally wrong to me. I, you know, the, I, I don't, we don't need to talk about the series. Uh, I don't know if we will, but the Unicorn Rescue Society sort of comes out of the same, um, philosophy. There are so many beautiful, incredible belief systems around the world, and they have been written off often as primitive, as backwards, um, as you know, lacking the rationality or science of you know Western um, thought. Um, and that's just such bullshit. Excuse my language. Um, uh, you know, I, I love the stories and the wisdom that comes from different ages and different places. Um, and if I can highlight those and showcase them without sort of appropriating somebody else's story and silencing somebody else, you know, um, helping them tell their story, but also, um, getting excited about it and sharing it with as many people as possible. Um, that's, that's one of the things that excites me most about being a writer is my opportunity to do that.
1: While you were talking, I'm I'm just going to preface this and we can cut this out if it's too weird. Mm -hmm. Okay. So while you were talking you said that the people like from the time medieval times finding dinosaur bones and thinking those are dragon bones. I never thought of that before. Really? Yeah. I've never it's- thought of that before. Because I like you were saying that, you know, uh Laura Amy is kind of on another planet. I'm often on another not maybe another planet, but <laughs> not in the same way as as you were describing her. But I'm just you know, it takes me a while to kind of come around and think of things, right? Like, just like a couple months ago, I realized the beginning of Footloose with all the dancing feet is probably the same person just in different shoes and pants. Nah. And like, <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god!" So um,
2: <laughs> that had never occurred to me. So yeah. I appreciate so
1: um, <laughs> so I I don't know. I just had this moment where I was like, "Oh my god!" That, I wondered what course, that face
0: was that you were making.
1: Well, I always not that I thought less of people in medieval times because of course they were wor- like you said Adam they were working with the the items that they had, the information mm-hmm. that they had. But I never thought about them actually finding dinosaur bones and that's why they thought dragons existed. Like I just thought that they I don't know what I thought, but that's <laughs> that's brilliant.
2: This well, absolutely. I mean, the way that we're taught about the Middle Ages, you know, is often called the Dark Ages, which it wasn't, never called them that. Um, there was a very short period that we can refer to as the Dark Ages from like 400 to 700, 400 to 680 or whatever, because uh, we have very few records from that time. So it's dark in terms of the historical record. Um but these people were brilliant people, just like we are brilliant people today. I mean, intelligence has not increased over time, in my opinion, technology has tools to augment and um, secure and record intelligence have certainly uh, increased over time, improved over time. But they were brilliant and they were doing brilliant things, as you said, with the materials that they had. Um, and, you know, there's this um, this great story, um, uh, by, oh gosh, I'm going to forget who it's by, but it'll come back to me, H.G. Wells, I believe. Um, and it's called In the Valley of the Blind. Um, and uh, it is, the in the the quote at the top, the epi- epigram at the, at the top of the story is I think a quote from Erasmus, I believe. And I think the quote is, In the Valley of the Blind, the one-eyed man is king. And it's uh, the story is about um, a sighted uh, explorer, I think he's supposed to be in the Andes or somewhere, who gets lost from his expedition and finds his way into a valley, which turns out to be the Valley of the Blind. In this valley, there is a a community of people, all of whom are blind. And he remembers this Erasmus quote, and he thinks, I'm about to be their king. I've got all the power that they don't have. And it starts out that way. um, And very quickly, he discovers that they have established a very vibrant and rich culture that is predicated in part on being blind. And he cannot follow it. So they walk very specific paths from house to house, and he can't see those paths. He doesn't know where they are. He doesn't have the sense for where they are. So he's walking all over places he's not supposed to walk. There are all sorts of um, cultural um, uh, traditions that they have, uh, yeah, that they have, that he has no access to. And far from being um, the king, He is ultimately – I think he's ultimately killed for his inability to understand what they're doing and his violation of their way of life. So I I feel that we've learned that about a lot of other peoples in the world and especially a lot of other time periods, especially the Middle Ages. Oh, they were stupid and they didn't have anything. And if one of us showed up there, we would just be the most awesome, powerful person. No, probably not. Probably would have have ended up dead real fast. So
1: how did you get paired up with Hatem Ali as the illustrator for Inquisitor's Tale?
2: It's a little bit of a story. Are you surprised? (laughs) Um, uh, Feel free to check out, and I'll I'll probably be done in about 15 minutes. Um, No, he, um, so, in fact, so you'll see he is the illustrator of of Unicorn Rescue Society also. Um, And um, Hatem... Um, the way it happened was when we were, when I was writing the Inquisitor's Tale, um, at first I wasn't going to have illustrations in the margins. I was actually going to have written commentary and I wrote a whole draft of the book, um, that had uh marginal commentary from three different characters commenting on the story. It was kind of cool, kind of interesting. It also made the book unbearably slow. Like every page took you 15 minutes to get through, um, <laughs> So, and when I cut it, it was like 25% of the text had just been in the margins. Um, so my editor was like, <laughs> no. Um, so when that stuff went, I still wanted the marginal commentary because um, uh, what I was doing was like like the Talmud has, which is a, is a medieval Jewish text. Um, and the Talmud actually gets it from Christian medieval texts. There's commentary in the margins on the central text, so you have multiple perspectives. I wanted that. Anyway, I jumped ahead a little bit because before we needed an illustrator for the Inquisitor's Tale, while I was still working on it, I had come up with the idea for the Unicorn Rescue Society and we had started looking for illustrators for that. Um, and I, there was a um, art director at Penguin who is no longer there. Um, and I said to this art director, I said, um, I would because the Unicorn Rescue Society is about exploring other cultures, other peoples around the world. I would love it not to be a white man who is illustrating this this series. He said, got it, no problem. He was also a white man. Um, and he sent me a list of three white men. And I was like, <laughs> I- I'm sorry, there was a communication error or something. I was like, no white men on the list of possible illustrators for it. Can we try again? He said, yep, yep, sorry, absolutely, no problem. And he sent me a list of two white men and one white woman. And I was like, <laughs> what is going on? Um, and, and what was going on was he said, look, um, we need somebody with a lot of experience to do this series. It's going to be a lot of books that are going to come out really quickly. And I just need somebody that I know can do it. Um, which is one of the ways that racism per, um, uh, what is it? uh, Perpetuates. perpetuates Yeah.
1: Perpetuates. Uh, Persists. yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, we rely on the networks that we already have. Um, those networks come out of racist structures. So I started looking around for um, a writer, I mean, illustrator, and I was just on a website looking at, um, you know, it was like one of those websites with like 100 different illustrators, each with thumbnails of their sketches. Um, and I saw one that had this like cartoony people, but beautifully detailed Islamic um, imagery above it, Islamic inspired imagery above the, the cartoony people. And I clicked on that and I was just taken with everything that I saw. And I brought that to the art director and said, can we use this guy? Um, his name is Hatem Ali. And, um, he said, no, he just doesn't have enough experience. Meanwhile, back at the inquisitor's tale, we had realized that we were not going to use all that marginal notation I had made, but maybe we could have illustrations. And like I said, we wanted another perspective, right? The book is about, um, the clash of religions, Judaism and Christianity in part. Um, but there's also some Muslim influence because of, um, uh, William, uh, the strong monks mother and I'm Jewish, my wife is Christian and is a scholar of medieval Christianity, but we didn't have any Muslim voice. And so Hattam suddenly sounded, seemed like, an, like a perfect choice to do the marginal illustrations for the Inquisitor's Tale. So I approached my editor, Julie, and said, what about Hattam? if he can't do Unicorn Rescue Society, could he do Inquisitor's Tale? And she said, yeah, that, that could definitely work. And he did such an incredible job on the Inquisitor's Tale and he worked so fast. Um, that by the time we'd finished the Inquisitor's Tale work, this art director from Penguin was gone, um, and I said, can we use him now? And she said, yeah, we can definitely use him. Awesome <laughs> has, has been the illustrator for all of those books.
0: Well, and the work is amazing. It's, it's, I, there's something about it, too. I don't know. I grew up on on fairy tale books, and a lot of them were illustrated, and there's something about the, the Illuminations in the Inquisitor's Tale that's very reminiscent of a lot of those.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, he gets to show a big range in it. You know, he's got like silly stuff. He's got beautiful stuff. He's got comp- contemplative stuff. Um, and as I say in the beginning of the book, I ask him to disagree with me. So you'll, you can find, cause I wanted his perspective too. So you can find illustrations in there that contradict the text on the page. Um, and, and I love, I love that. I just, what he did is definitely, um, an integral part to what the book ended up being. And I don't, I don't know that it would have won a Newbery medal without that illustration. I, I, I actually highly doubt it.
0: I don't know, though. I mean, when you think about the committees being composed of librarians and, and all these book people, and then it, the Inquisitor's Tale reads to me like a, just a love story to stories between the the structure of it and also the plot. I appreciate that. And the format, like it just for me, the like you just want to like hug it. I don't know. It's
2: just, oh, I, I love, love that. St- Thank
1: I, you. I, when I came wrong. over, she had it she had it just <laughs> oh, to her no, bosom. She, she <laughs> was just holding it to her bosom and rocking.
2: <laughs> That's not weird at all.
0: <laughs> Much like the rest of the things we do. Um, <laughs> so do you have
1: any memories about your Newberry your Newberry banquet?
2: Oh yeah. Um I mean, first of all, I remember the run up to the banquet because it was terrified. It was, it happened to be when Trump had proposed his Muslim travel ban.
0: Oh, God.
2: And Hatem is a Muslim man with, from Egypt who lives in Canada. And so suddenly there was a major question as to whether Hatem would be able to come to the Newbury Banquet. Um, luckily, the way that the courts eventually ruled on the, I don't remember what happened when, eventually he was he was able to come. Um, and that was just beautiful experience. So Julie, my editor, and she's my editor, every book but my Star Wars book, she's been my editor from the very beginning. Um, Julie Strauss-Gable, she edits um, John Green and Ransom Riggs. Yeah, she's an unbelievable editor. Uh, and so it's, she, and she's like a big sister to me now, like a super mean big sister. Um,
0: <laughs> so she's just the a regular editor big sister. I
2: have ever heard of. Everyone knows. When I, when I have other Penguin authors meet me and they're like, who's your editor? And I'm like, Julie Strauss-Gable, like, oh, how's that going? She's mean, <laughs> She's super smart. So I had like my mean big sister on one side of me, and I think Hottam was on the other, or maybe Hottam was in the middle. Um, to sit with those, to the three of us at, at, at a table at the Newberry Banquet um, was, is one of the best memories of my life.
0: Um, I have a completely unrelated question. Um, I was reading some interviews that you had done and, uh, in one with Voya magazine, you express a really strong opinion on the first line of a book in general about how that's kind of like an interview, um, or an audition. So I was wondering if you have a favorite first
2: line of a book. Oh, wow. Great question. Um, the one that comes to mind off the top of my head is from, This might sound obscure. It depends on whether you majored in English in college or not. Of course, Um, (laughs) (laughs) A novel by Ford Maddox Ford um, called The Good Soldier. Yes. And the first line of the book is, this is the saddest story I have ever heard.
0: That is a Um, really good one.
2: I just... It makes me, it makes me like want to cry just thinking about it because it's such a good book and the story doesn't seem like it's going to be sad. It's not one of those things where like, you know, one of those like Thomas Hardy novels where like everyone gets stabbed in the chest with a knife or anything like that. Um, It's not one of those over the top sad stories. It's just a quiet, sad story about a marriage and about a former soldier in the, you know, upper middle class. Um, And that, and, and, and that period of literature actually is a big inspiration to me. Um, Ford Maddox Ford was really close with Henry James and they were writing at the same time and they had these, this theory that you should, it was, it was essentially, I would say like the beginning of postmodern thought about writing though. I'm sure a scholar would be like, uh, that's wrong and you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and <laughs> the second point is definitely true. I don't know what I'm talking about, but they started, um, wanting to acknowledge the form that they were writing in um, instead of pretending that it was real, they would acknowledge this is a story. This is the saddest story I've ever heard. Or if you read that great novella, Mm -hmm. the turn of the screw, which Mm -hmm. you probably had to read in high school. And if you haven't read it since go back and read it, it's so great by Henry James, a ghost story that may not have any ghosts in it. Um, it's actually a story within a story within a story. Um, it's somebody, uh, somebody's telling a story to other people that he heard from somebody else. Um, and so the acknowledgement of that, um, the storiness, is, is something that I have absolutely adopted in my books. And it goes back to the storytelling thing where I, I almost need to, at the beginning of my books, justify that I am writing a story down. Okay. This is me telling you a grim fairy tale. Or, um, if you get to the end of the inquisitor's tale, we learn why this book was written down in the first place. Um and you learn why the book has the title that it does. Um so uh and I get that right from Ford Maddox Ford and from Henry James. Um so yeah, that's my favorite line. How about you guys? You have favorite lines?
0: Oh, I do. Um mine is first
2: line. (laughs) The
0: first the first line. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) 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 Which is from uh The Voyage of the Dawn Treader.
1: (laughs) Um so we have one last question for you. Um What are some of what's your favorite Newberry book? if um, you have one
2: sure um favorite new-
1: <laughs> just in line with what we were just doing we're just putting hey, on let's the spot, put you on like, the yeah, spot
0: <laughs> exactly damn it
2: <laughs> I don't I mean I don't know I
0: actually I was I don't re- have just
2: one yeah again?
0: You can- I, I was gonna say I was reading that your favorite book non-Newberry is Matilda which I respect very much oh Matilda <laughs>
2: I mean, talk about an author. I mean, this is honestly, before I won the Newbery honor, I was like, you know, if I never win a Newbery honor, it's totally fine or Newbery. It's totally fine. Cause Roald Dahl never did. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I mean, and he's who I would want to be as an author, right? If I had to steal one person's, um, <laughs> uh, career, yeah. I'm just laughing because I'm thinking about on, uh, I was hanging out with my brother-in-law and a few friends and, um, I we might have had like a couple of drinks. I don't know. And this was this was 10 years ago or or so. Yeah, eight years ago. And for some reason, Justin Timberlake came up and my brother-in-law just looks at us and says, I would take his life. We're like, what? And we couldn't tell if he meant like I would take his life like I would live his life or I would kill him. We could not tell um, to this day. I'm still not sure. Anyway. Uh, so, Roald Dahl, I would take his life. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, among the my favorite Newberry books are Because of Winn Dixie. That book makes me just weep. Um, uh, the Giver. I taught that every year. I taught fifth grade. I love that book. Um, Jerry Spinelli's Maniac McGee was a book that was both really influential to me as a kid and remains influential in terms of its really interesting storytelling structures. Um, I love. Um, I love all of those books. Um, I probably have about fifteen more newberries that I really adore, but those are the maybe because I read all of those a really long time ago, they have been sort of foundational for me. Um and I know that there are um yeah, um many wonderful newberries that have come more recently, but of the ones that like lodge deep inside of my chest. Those are three off the top of my head.
0: Those are great choices. Thank you so much for talking with us today. We really enjoyed it.
2: Um, It has been a total pleasure. And if I said anything really embarrassing, um, I hope you isolate it and use it as your teaser.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a promise.
2: Yeah, I hope to run into you again soon.
0: Yes. Yes. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is NewberryTart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T
2: dot com.